Hello and welcome back to Crawford Insights, the podcast where we take a recent post from the Crawford Investment Council blog and discuss it with the author. I'm your host, Tom Bueller, and today we're bringing back Boris Kuzman, our financial sector analyst, to give an update on what's been happening in the banking industry recently. Boris recently put out a piece titled Reaching for Yield and Landing in Failure about what led to the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Welcome back, Boris. Thanks for coming on to talk to us about this very topical subject. Glad to be here, Tom. Can you give us like a 30,000-foot view about what's been going on in the banking space over the last few weeks? The current situation can be best described as bad policy meets bad management. And to start on the bad policy side of it, we have to go back a few years and really look at what the Fed was doing even before the pandemic. As most of us are well aware, the rates were very low for a very long time. And this is mainly coming out of the Great Recession? Yeah, even a few years before the pandemic. And believe it or not, two years ago, the Fed had a meeting almost to the day. And the headline coming out of that meeting was... Federal Reserve officials signaled that they don't expect interest rates to rise until 2024. And here we are in 2023, and we just had interest rates go from zero to almost 5% over a course of one year. This sharp policy reversal is what essentially sowed the seeds of the current banking crisis. And interestingly enough, also on the bad policy side, there was failure of supervision on the Fed's part because we know that all these large banks are subject to annual stress tests. Regulators regularly look at various risks these banks are exposed to and come up with these esoteric scenarios of 10% unemployment and things like that, but apparently didn't occur to them to consider the interest rate risk and what happens when interest rates rise at a rapid pace. Now, switching to our bad management side of things, to set things up, banks routinely have to hold some level of high-quality financial instruments on their balance sheet, in addition to the more typical loans that they make to their customers. During this liquidity infusion that the Fed engineered during the pandemic and a few years afterwards, banks and their customers deposited large sums of money because of zero interest rates, companies were able to obtain easy financing and consumers were supported by government payments. Certain banks like Silicon Valley and Signature Bank were outsized beneficiaries of these deposit inflows and they had outsized securities portfolio relative to other banks. So there weren't enough lending opportunities for banks to loan this money out, so they were stuck with all this cash on this balance sheet. The natural place to put this money was into their securities portfolio, which typically is a very low-risk instruments. As I said, they're either treasury obligations or mortgage-backed securities that are guaranteed by the U.S. government. So banks were forced to buy these securities with very low yields, given the prevailing interest rate environment. Some banks, like Silicon Valley and Signature, wanted to reach for that yield, as we mentioned in the title of our report, and go out a little bit and buy slightly longer duration securities that carried ever so slightly higher yields. As a result, their portfolio sensitivity to interest rate increased. And when interest rates started going up, these bonds lost value. And again, remember that the Fed was promising no rate increases until 2024, so that felt relatively safe to them. Fast forward to today, we've had these interest rate increases which decrease the value of these securities because they move inversely with interest rates. And at the same time, customers at these banks all of a sudden had another option for their cash. 
because, for example, treasury bills offer a risk-free alternative at a much higher yield of four plus percent. So they started moving these cash balances into the treasury market. So we had two things working against each other, securities values going down and deposits flowing out of these banks, which created this liquidity crisis. It's easy to see this liquidity crisis with hindsight. Obviously, a week ago, it was a little more opaque. What specifically led to the run on Silicon Valley Bank? Once these issues started to filter through from industry talk to more mainstream media, and with Silicon Valley actually realizing that they needed to raise some capital, which would have been manageable otherwise, but because there's such a tight-knit community of venture capitalists where everybody knows each other, everybody's on their Twitter communicating with each other, once they got wind of Silicon Valley Bank needing to raise capital, this was perceived as a bank being in trouble. And once the psychological threshold was breached, in a sense, all these venture capitalists rushed to take their money out all at the same time. And no bank can withstand a run of that magnitude when all of your customers are rushing to get their deposits all at once. So even though Silicon Valley had these reserves that they were required to hold in addition to their normal assets, those reserves weren't enough to satisfy all of the withdrawal requests that they were facing at once. Right. Remember those securities that decreased in value to satisfy the deposit calls, they would have to sell those securities at a loss, which creates even more problem and more need for additional capital. And to do that quickly, they tried to raise some capital, but that didn't work on such a short notice. And that's why the federal officials had to step in and take over the bank to protect the depositors. So after Silicon Valley failed, that weekend Signature Bank also failed. And that seemed somewhat to come as a surprise because they looked like they were in much better shape, not facing the same withdrawal pressures that Silicon Valley was facing. What happened to them? It actually was a similar situation. They did have an outsized securities book. They had a lot of depositors with a high dollar value of their deposits, well above the $250,000 limit that was insured by FDIC. And pretty sophisticated customers, many real estate developers in New York City. Again, another tight-knit community that saw what was happening with Silicon Valley and started taking their money out as well over the weekend. Plus, they did have business with cryptocurrencies and supporting that ecosystem, which is inherently high-risk industry. So the Fed decided to step in there as well and take it over. So it was kind of the same factors at play, the large securities book and a concentrated depositor base above the FDIC insurance limits. Yeah. So those two factors were key for these two banks and to some extent what's been going on with a few others like First Republic is another bank that's been in the news lately. So what steps did the Fed take to try to stem this crisis? The Federal Reserve and FDIC and Treasury took a couple of really unprecedented steps. One was they effectively guaranteed the deposits, all of the deposits at Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, even beyond the $250,000 limit of FDIC insurance. And we believe that implicitly means that all of the deposits across the U.S. banking system are now effectively 
effectively guaranteed by the Fed. Even though that wasn't an explicit guarantee, I don't see how if we have another bank in a similar situation that they will not protect those depositors while they did protect depositors at Silicon Valley and Signature Bank. And that was done to stem the potential deposit outflows from regional banks, smaller banks into the largest U.S. institutions that are perceived to be too big to fail effectively. The second step that was taken, the Fed created this lending facility for banks where banks can take their securities and pledge them as collateral and receive cash from the Fed. And the key feature of that program is that those securities can be tendered at par value. So this removes the risk of banks having to recognize these losses and banks needing a capital infusion and again resulting in concerns from depositors or investors that, you know, these banks are in trouble, essentially. So do you and kind of other market participants think this has been enough to halt the damage that's out there? It appears that there's still a lot of volatility. So there are still a few bad apples, I would say. There are some concerns in the industry of what will happen to those banks. I mentioned First Republic. There are a couple of smaller banks. Um, They're not certainly systemically important and not as big as Silicon Valley even. And they all have those features that we talked about, high proportion of uninsured deposits and a lot of embedded losses in their securities books. I believe personally that by removing these two risks of deposit flight and needing to raise capital, we certainly have stabilized the industry. And at the very least, we should see things starting to calm down. Coming out of this, do we anticipate different actions by banks going forward? Well, there's certainly going to be more scrutiny from regulators. And it's interesting, people often say that generals, they're always prepared to fight the last war. And I feel like that was the same case here with the Fed, where they were looking for the trouble in the typical places like credit quality and lending risky lending behaviors and things like that, while, again, not being prepared for the interest rate risk. So there's certainly going to be more scrutiny on that part of the banking industry and the bank's balance sheets. Also, there's going to be a higher cost for banks to attract deposits. Deposit rates will go up faster than they have been to be more competitive with other higher interest rate opportunities in the market. And finally, this implicit guarantee by the government of all deposits, it's also probably going to come at a cost and higher insurance premiums for banks. But traditionally, these type of costs, unfortunately, get passed on in the form of higher loan rates or higher fees. So it remains to be seen how much damage to bank profitability that will actually do. That's what I was thinking about is what impact this will have on the earnings of banks going forward. There's certainly going to be some impact in the short run. We've also seen interest rates come down quite significantly over the past few days. And effectively, the Fed is going to be in a tight spot here, whether they continue to raise rates or they take a pause here or maybe look at cutting rates in the near future. And that will impact banks' margins. But the priority number one right now is to certainly calm the panic and not have any more bank runs like we've seen with Silicon Valley. You mentioned First Republic earlier and a couple smaller banks. Are there others that, you know, people are still kind of worried might face some of these same issues? 
in the near term? Um, no, First Republic is kind of the biggest target out there. But even today, we just saw the news that larger banks are effectively taking the deposits they gained over past week because of Silicon Valley and Signature Bank and taking a portion of that and redepositing effectively them into First Republic, helping shore up their liquidity. So that's another positive step. And I think First Republic will be stabilized for now. I don't know if it will remain independent, even with this liquidity infusion, um, just because in the banking business, confidence and perception matter a lot. And so in the end, it might be sold or it might be acquired by someone else or significantly repositioned or recapitalized. But beyond that, the industry does have these embedded losses on their securities books. They don't have to be recognized immediately. A key point of that is also that it's a timing issue because the securities themselves don't carry credit risk. So those losses effectively accrue back into the value of these securities as they approach maturity. So this is different from the crisis we had on our 708 when banks were effectively taking permanent losses on their loans and when there were a tremendous number of foreclosures in the housing market. But here, these losses can be reversed over time. And so what we need here is just more time for these securities to accrue their value back. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, you mentioned earlier that it's not the same war that we just fought before. Right. This one's a little bit right. different. And that's one, I, I would say, if there are any positive positives. This difference between current situation and the financial crisis is we're not facing the same risk of permanent loss effectively in banks' loan books. Do you see impact beyond banking in other areas of the economy? We might see banks being more stringent with the way they lend money out and being more careful, trying to preserve capital and avoid some of the more riskier opportunities, which will cause potentially some contraction in lending. And that's actually one of the goals, I think, of the Fed is to tighten the financial conditions a little bit and the contraction in bank lending would qualify as that. So there will be less capital available. There will be more careful underwriting with the eye towards better returns because when you had near zero interest rates, the threshold for earning a profit was pretty low. But now when your financing all of a sudden costs you 8 9%, 10%, companies will not bring on projects unless they're highly, highly profitable. We saw this week a lot of news headlines about Credit Suisse, a Swiss bank. Are they facing the same type of issue that we saw over here? Uh, yes and no. Credit Suisse has been struggling for some time, so their troubles actually predate the current crisis for the most part. They've been involved in a series of scandals and mismanagement, but they have also seen a lot of deposit outflows. So there's a bit of a crisis of confidence in that bank as well even though maybe driven by somewhat different issues. But again, we saw the other day Swiss government is going to inject about $50 billion into Credit Suisse, again, shoring up their liquidity and stabilizing. As far as our exposure to Credit Suisse here in the U.S., some of the largest banks might have some relationships. They've been effectively managed down and are not particularly significant, I believe, because they again, of the multi-year nature of the troubles at Credit Suisse. We've been preparing for something like that. Yeah, this isn't the same out-of-the-blue type of situation like we saw last week. 
speaking of out of the blue, there's also been some non-traditional banks that have been somewhat caught up in this, or at least their stock prices have been caught up in this. Charles Schwab is one that we've seen really suffer declines in their stock over the last 10 days or so. Why would Schwab be under such pressure? I believe here we have a problem with the business model, not so much significant risk of this company going out of business, but just the profitability of the business model coming under pressure. As you might be aware, Charles Schwab hardly charges anything on trading. So more recently, their business model was supported by taking customer deposits and then paying very low rates on those and then investing them in the money market or government securities and and keeping that difference. With all this awareness of what's been going on at Silicon Valley and the opportunities for their own customers to take that money and invest in short-term treasury obligations and regain that spread. They've also seen what's called deposit sorting, not necessarily people taking out their deposits from Schwab, but moving them in a different part of the company. And that carries, obviously, lower profitability for Schwab. And this crisis kind of highlighted that situation as well. They do have a securities book, also with embedded losses, but they have a lot of liquidity available to them. I don't see the situation developing in the same vein as Silicon Valley signature. If we were to see that type of situation occur with Schwab and the corporate Schwab fail or you know become insolvent, what would happen to the investment accounts and the assets that are in there? Would clients lose all of their money? Well, there are different parts of Schwab, obviously. The banking side of Schwab enjoys the same FDIC insurance up to 250000 and now I believe probably any deposit would be made whole even above that. On the security side, it's a little bit more complicated. There is SIPC, something analogous to FDIC on the security side, which also guarantees holders of securities will be made whole up to $500,000. So there are some protections, but again, I think it's a highly remote possibility of something like that happening. So in light of everything that's been going on, what has been Crawford's response in our client portfolios? Let me start, first of all, by saying that in all our strategies, all our portfolios, we pursue high-quality stocks. We look for high-quality businesses that can survive situations like this and survive recessions. In our bank, stock selection is no exception. We were invested in banks with strong deposit bases that did not rely on large outsized deposits like Silicon Valley from a select group of customers. So diversified deposit base is one of the core attributes we look for when selecting banks, a strong history of credit underwriting, experienced management. So our banks have done relatively well. They certainly are not immune to the decline in prices that we've seen across the industry, but our discipline has kept us from names like Silicon Valley and First Republic. But at the same time, we're mindful of what's going on in the industry as a whole and kind of the risks that are emerging from a growth standpoint, regulation. And so we will look to manage the overall banking exposure to account for those risks. Do you think it's possible that this may present some opportunities to potentially make purchases of higher quality banks that get caught up in downdrafts in their stock prices? Yeah, certainly we're looking for those opportunities. I think we need us to settle a little bit here before buying anything, even though some of these bank stocks certainly do look attractive. But at the same time, we're not also in any rush to sell 
our own holdings. Right now, we're just monitoring the landscape and watching all our holdings and make sure we're not overly exposed to any risk. Well, Boris, obviously, this is an area of focus for all investors these days. Thanks for joining us to provide some additional detail and insights into what's been happening. Knowing that you and the rest of the equity research team are staying on top of this certainly gives our clients a lot of comfort. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us for this episode. If you haven't already done so, be sure to check out Boris's article, Reaching for Yield and Landing in Failure, on our website at insights.crawfordinvestment.com forward slash perspectives. As always, you can subscribe to the Perspectives blog while you're there, and don't forget to come back next month for another episode.